Now let's uh, read God's Word again in the Old Testament this time, and uh, turning to the prophecy of Joel, which we began uh, looking at a couple of weeks ago, the prophecy of Joel. You'll find that in the Bible after the books of Daniel and Hosea. It immediately follows Hosea, and in the Church Bible, it's on page 1050. And again, let's read a selection of verses. beginning at uh, verse 1 of chapter 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it, Let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust has eaten. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, and of course this nation is an army of locusts, as we saw before, strong and without number. His teeth are like the teeth of a lion, and he has the fangs of a fierce lion, and he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away, Its branches are made white. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up and the oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine has dried up, and the fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests, Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come and lie all night in sackcloth, you who minister to my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as destruction from the Almighty. Is not the food 
cut off before our eyes joy and gladness from the house of our God, and then turn forward to chapter 2. And as the army of locusts arrives in verse 11, we read that the Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? In verse 11, we're told that the Lord gives voice before his army. So the locusts that are invading the land of Judah are described as the army of the Lord. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Joel was sent to prophesy to Judah in a time of national disaster. But this time, the disaster was not the kind that they normally faced when the Lord was angry with them. It wasn't a foreign invasion by a foreign army as such. It's actually an invasion in the world of nature. They are invaded by a succession of swarms of locusts. And uh, just like the particular pestilence that has affected ourselves, the effect of these waves of locusts was not so much death or captivity or anything like that, but a devastation of the economy. Now, it was clearly a, an almost total devastation of the economy, but nonetheless, it shouldn't be missed that there's a mercy in that. I mean, the Lord does grade his chastisements. We've seen that several times before. We'll see it later, too, as we progress through this book by God's grace. He grades his chastisement on nations and on ourselves individually. And really, it's a mercy that he, first of all, only touches their economy. But it is severe, and verse 4 is designed to convey that, that absolutely everything edible except what the people were able to gather, of course, when they saw the thing coming, but everything is just destroyed. The chewing locust, the swarming locust, and the crawling locust, and the consuming locust have devoured everything. And it's affected everybody in the land. In verse 5, the drunkards are to wail, and I think we're to understand them as being representative of those who have an outwardly sinful life. In verse 11, the farmers and the vine dressers are to wail as well. They are ordinary working, laboring people who are seeing uh, their own income devastated. In verse 18, the animals of the field themselves are wailing and crying to God because there is little pasture for them. And, of course, very solemnly, the priests or the ministers of the house of God they are to wail too in verse 9 because the grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the Lord's house. And again in verse 13, they're to gird themselves, these priests, and to lament those who minister before God's altar because the grain offering and the drink offering, these are parts of worship, parts of regular worship. The grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house 
of your God. Now, last time we saw some of the remarkable parallels between the situation that came on Judah here and the situation that's come on our own land, and indeed, particularly the nations of the West, to some extent worldwide, but particularly the nations of the West. And uh, not least in the results, these people lost their comforts and their entertainments first. These things were removed. Although God solemnly touched his own house and his own people too. And I think we saw very plainly last time that the overall effect of these successive waves of locust was that it took away joy from the people. The, the sense of joy that you would see amongst people generally, and especially the joy that's found in the house of God. We're told in verse 12 of chapter 1, at the very end of verse 12, that as well as the trees withering and the fruit withering, surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. And you see that. People are lost without their clubs, their pubs, and their casinos, and so on. But again, the joy has also been removed from the house of God. In verse 16, it's not the food cut off before our eyes, but more than that, joy and gladness from the house of our God. And uh, there's a particular connection there with ourselves. We are hindered at the moment from praise specifically, and also from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Powerful reminders that God is speaking, not just to the nation today, but to the church too. And if you doubt that, I suppose simply reading these chapters will confirm to you that the Lord is speaking. But the big question, and really that's where I left it last time, the, the big question for us is um, how do we interpret what God is actually doing? I suppose we could say the same thing in connection with Joel. How were Judah supposed to interpret it when these waves of locusts came upon them. It's not as though they never had locusts before. They did from time to time, just as they still do. But the fact is that they had never seen them like this, in such succession and with such devastation. As Joel said, your fathers never saw it. You never saw it yourselves. And what's more, he said, you tell it to your children and let them tell it to their children in turn. So how did they interpret that? And how do we interpret what God has done throughout this year in our land and also in other lands too? Is it the Lord? If so, in what sense is it the Lord? In other words, what's the Lord really saying in the middle of all these things? Now, if you're, take, if you're to take that first question first, is it the Lord? I mean, there's no doubt that it is of the Lord. The locusts were the Lord's army. He, he makes that plain to them. This is my army. I'm at the head. You hear the noise of them coming, and you see the sun darkening with the swarms, but I'm going before them. They're doing my command and will. So, of course, the same thing is true of this virus. It is God who unleashes it. 
As Amos says, shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not done it? Now the word evil there, I think, should be translated calamity or disaster, which is how I think the New King James does translate it. It's Amos chapter 3, I think verse 4, but it's certainly chapter 3. Shall there be disaster or shall there be calamity in a city and the Lord has not done it? So God is the author of all disaster and calamity. We're to understand that. He unleashes the locust. He unleashes a virus. But it's the second question that's the important one. In what sense is it of the Lord? Now, um, I drew attention to this last time, and I'm not sure I really made myself clear, so let me just say it again. When we say, um, in what sense is it of the Lord? Or when we ask that question, what I mean is this, is it just an ordinary providence from God? In other words, um, providence is full of events that are a mixture of good and bad. Shall we receive good from the hand of the Lord, and shall we not receive evil also? Days of adversity, days of prosperity. Now, if we're to understand this virus as, as just another one of these things that happen in a fallen world, that means that the only lesson we can derive from it is what we would call a general one. In other words, it's, it's a simple reminder, like everything else can be, or other things can be, a reminder that our life is short and that our life is very uncertain and precarious, that we will encounter good and evil together, a day of adversity and a day of prosperity, and a reminder in it too that we are all to prepare for the final day of the Lord. Because, well, you'll notice that the expression day of the Lord appears quite often in this prophecy. So, so the invasion of the locust and the devastation of the locust was a reminder to them that one day God would judge the earth. Now, I'm not saying that these are unimportant lessons. These are very important lessons to learn. And obvious as they are, we're slow to learn them. How slow we are to take in, friends, that our life is uncertain, that our life is short, and that we need to prepare for God's final intervention in this world's history. But still, that would leave the locust as simply an ordinary providence. But is it, on the other hand, an extraordinary providence or an unusual providence? And what I mean by that is a providence that is specially sent by the Lord in response to either the obedience or the disobedience of people. That's why I mean what I mean by an extraordinary providence. Something that God specially sends in response to either the obedience or the disobedience of the people. In other words, I suppose you could kind of sum it up by saying, is this plague of locusts, is it a chastisement on Judah? Is it a judgment upon Judah? And is this virus unleashed on our nation and the nations of the earth? Is, is it a judgment? Is it a chastisement? Is it God specially sending something for a special purpose? Now, personally, I think that question is really very important. And uh, I think how we answer it 
uh, has consequences for how we see uh, the Christian life. It has consequences for how we see God dealing with us individually in life. Does he intervene in providence to correct ourselves, for example? And, and how we understand the life of the church, does God providentially afflict the church to teach churches lessons? Does he afflict nations to teach nations lessons? These are really important questions. You see, if you just reduce all providence to a general kind of thing, to a mixture of good and bad that never really teaches any particular lessons, that's going to radically affect how you understand what God's doing in the world to you, to the church, and to the nations. And one of the reasons as well that I'm saying it's important is because I've, I've come to realize over the last few months and over most of this year that a large number of preachers don't see COVID-19 as a chastisement or a judgment from God. They seem to see it as just an ordinary providence that should just be a kind of wake-up call uh, reminding us to be ready for death and to be ready for God's judgment. But that's all. No judgment, no chastisement. And as far as I can see, they only have really one reason for saying that. And the reason is that Christ has warned us against interpreting disasters as being a sign of God's anger against those who suffer those disasters. Now, there's no doubt that we're taught that in both the Old and New Testaments. We're warned. We are warned against relating disasters to God's anger against the people who suffer these disasters. Take the best-known example in the Old Testament, and that's the example of Job. We know that Job suffered so much spiritually, not just from, from what came upon him, the successive waves of affliction that came into his life, his family, his health, and so on. But he suffered so much at the hands of his friends and his counselors who told them that there was a direct link between his suffering and what he was like himself as a person. In other words, he must be spiritually fraudulent. There must be some serious hypocrisy in his life, however outwardly respectable he was. Now, of course, the Word of God tells us that that wasn't the case. It tells us, in fact, quite the opposite, that there was no one as godly as Job in all the earth. Yet God allowed these afflictions to come upon him. So there's a warning there against drawing a direct line between someone's suffering and sin in their lives. Or take the New Testament. We read an example there. Christ refers to a recent local tragedy in Jerusalem when the Tower of Siloam fell and 18 people were killed. And he says, do you think that these 18 people were greater sinners than everybody else just because the Tower of Siloam fell on them? 
No, he said. But unless you repent, all of you, then you will similarly perish. I suppose that would be similar to us, for example, just to take a a very ordinary and random example. Suppose someone just uh, was killed out there in a car accident. That would be similar to us saying, well, uh, they must have sinned particularly for God to cut them down in a car accident. This kind of teaching in the Bible clearly warns us against that. We, We cannot draw that kind of inference. Or again, it would be similar to saying something like this. Let's suppose I was to say to you that everyone who died under COVID-19, and I think there's around a million or so deaths worldwide, that these people are under the evident judgment of God. That would be wrong of me to say that. I, I have no warrant to say that at all. So absolutely, we are taught in both Old and New Testaments not to draw a direct line between people's sufferings and sin. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that um, you couldn't draw a general lesson. Let's take your car accident again. Um, Or take the 18 people on whom the tower fell. There's a general lesson. I need to be ready. I need to be ready when the final call comes to myself. I need to be ready because that call can come any time. Life is unpredictable as well as short. So unless I repent, I will similarly perish. In other words, that car accident for me is a kind of picture of the sudden destruction that will come upon me one day. So it's right for you to learn that, that, that general lesson. And I'm sure these preachers and teachers, and I, I don't mean to pronounce a, a sweeping judgment on them, But I'm sure the ones who teach that that COVID-19 is not God's chastisement, I'm sure they would still say that that it can remind you of certain things and that it can be a kind of wake-up call. That's true. But there's a problem with that. There's a problem with making this a, a universal principle of interpretation. In other words, there's a problem with saying that you can never connect an individual's disaster with their sin, and that you can never connect a national disaster to national sin. There's a huge problem with saying that you can never do that. And I think you need to realize how far-reaching that actually is if you're going to believe it. If you're going to say that God can't, that we can't connect national disaster with national sin, or that we can never connect personal disaster with personal sin, that means that God can't chasten nations anymore, and it means that he can't even chasten ourselves anymore think about that? At the individual level, if you can't relate God's providential dealings with you to things that you do in life, it means that God can't warn you in providence or he can't chasten you in providence because you can't interpret it in case you get it wrong. Fair? It would also mean the same at a national level. If if you can't relate 
the providence of a nation to how a nation is actually living. You are in effect saying that God can never chasten a nation. That's what you're saying. Because the danger would be that whatever the providence, you might get it wrong, you see. If you're saying that no connection can ever be drawn between disaster and conduct, then how does God chasten a nation? Now, you have to realize that that's the consequence of your position. After all, I hope you remember, I mean, we were looking some time ago at chastisement um, in, some, in some depth, really, although it was individual chastisement we were looking at. And I emphasize the importance of recognizing chastisement. It couldn't be chastisement unless you recognized it. I mean, if, if I was to administer a slap to a child, which of course now is outlawed in this country, um, I, think, I think it may be the first time that simply living as a Christian has been outlawed uh, in this land over many, many years. Simply doing something that the Bible commands has become against the law. That's a terribly worrying trend that has begun. But if you were to do that and you didn't tell the child what it was for, I mean, that would be hopeless as a chastisement. There would be no corrective element in it whatsoever. It would, it would be to do with you rather than to do with the child. Or at least, you know, the chastisement would have to be recognizable even if it wasn't recognized. There were many times when God chastised his people, and in fact, this was one of them, and they weren't recognizing it. But it was recognizable. In other words, had they been in the Spirit, and had they asked the Lord, Lord, why has this come into my life? Is there a particular reason now for what I am passing through? They would have got the answer. But because they didn't consult their Father in heaven, or the father of the nations, they got no answer. The chastisement was there, but it didn't chastise, it didn't teach, and it didn't train. But this view that God doesn't afflict nations according to what they deserve, or that he doesn't afflict individuals according to what they deserve, means that God can't chasten anymore. Is that not correct? He can't do it in providence. So you're effectively saying then that whether you do good or bad makes no difference to God's dealings with you. You're effectively saying that he doesn't reward obedience in providence and neither does he judge disobedience in providence. That's where that argument goes. And I don't think anyone who makes that argument realizes that that's where it goes. But maybe if you do realize that that's where it goes, maybe you have to take a step back and say, well, is that really then what the Old Testament was teaching? And is it really what the New Testament is teaching? Or is there something wrong with the way that we're understanding the Bible? Did Christ really say that God doesn't chastise nations in his providence? Did Christ really say that we could never see God's intervention in a person's life due to their sin? Is that what Christ said? Well, let's take a closer look at that. And... Uh, I'll look at it uh, tonight with you as well as today because I think, to be honest, it is of huge importance for our personal church and national lives. And um, I think we should just begin by noticing a very simple fact. 
And that is that God has always chastised the nations on the basis of their conduct. And that he still does. God has always chastised nations on the basis of their conduct, and he still does. Now, I, I don't think I need to stress to you that God has chastised Israel as a nation and as a church down through the years. I, I, I don't think I need to stress that. I mean, the amount of times in which we're told that God released either famine or war, uh, drought, or something of that kind. I mean, these are so plentiful. In fact, uh, in the following prophecy, uh, there's a series of chastisements that came upon the nation in Amos and chapter 4 and verse 6. Uh, I think I read these with you just a few months ago, but the, they're very revealing. Amos 4, 6, where God says, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in your places, yet you have not returned to me. So that's a chastisement. The chastisement didn't work. Clean teeth means nothing to eat. That's simply what he's saying. I gave you famine, but you didn't return. Verse 7, here's another chastisement. I withheld rain from you. When there were still three months to harvest, I made it rain on one city, and I withheld rain from another. In other words, you could discern that it was my hand if you wanted to. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered, he says. But yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Again, a chastisement, but no response to the chastisement. So God blasted them with blight and mildew, verse 9. When the gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, and the locusts devoured them, you have not returned to me. Verse 10, I sent a plague among you. I killed your young men with a sword, and I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me. So I don't need to say any more than that. God has clearly dealt with his people in the past by unleashing hardship in providence, right? Difficult providences were the voice of God, and they were meant to discern them as the voice of God. But you say, what about the other nations of the world? Did, did God actually deal with other nations in a similar way? Well, of course he did. Certainly there's a psalm that tells us that he raises up kings and casts them down. That he, that, he, that he is over all the nations in his sovereignty. And you say, well, yes, I acknowledge that. Yes, but he's over them in his sovereignty, which implies his rule and his justice, which implies his goodness, his judgment, his intervention, taking some down, placing others in their place. It's a sovereignty according to purpose. He deals with specific nations according to their deeds and their rulers too. Take, for example, Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it's not that long since we looked at the prophecy of Daniel. Now, here you have a city and an empire. It's got nothing to do with Israel, really, but God has something to do with it. Certainly, he intervenes in the life of this nation and the people. He intervenes in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He actually introduces the gospel to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar resists it. God, of course, takes away his reason 
and he takes him away from his place as king. He was living with the beasts of the earth, effectively, for seven years of his life. But God restored the kingdom of Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because he repented and acknowledged God in heaven. This isn't Israel we're talking about. This is the greatest city in the greatest empire of the time. His son, Belshazzar, was judged in the middle of holding a party for all his nobility. And not only was he judged personally, but Babylon was judged with him. The, the people of Babylon lost their city and they lost their empire. Why? Because God had judged them all. He didn't just judge Belshazzar. Famously, he was weighed in the balances and he was found wanting or lacking. But so was Babylon as a kingdom and as an empire. That night, weighed in God's balances and found wanting. And that night, the kingdom was ripped from them. Darius the Mede came and you had a new empire of Medes and Persians. Why? Just because of the random flux or the general oversight of God's sovereignty? No, but God intervened because of things like sin and righteousness. He took one down and he raised another up. The thing, in a way, should be so obvious. God is judging all the nations of the earth, certainly on the basis of their knowledge and understanding. There's no doubt about that. But they all have the moral law. It's all written in their hearts that we should worship the one true God and worship him in the appointed way and that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And when any nation stepped without the bounds of that in a particular way, God unleashed his wrath in providence. The, the army of Darius the Mede was not a general providence. It was a judgment on Babylon. That's what I'm saying. And you wouldn't be right to sit there and say, oh, well, that's the way things are, you know. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go. There's lessons to be learned. The end of the world will come upon us. There's more to it than that. God intervenes in life, depending on how we live it. Take a better example. Take the example of Assyria. God suddenly announces that he's going to destroy the capital city of Assyria, which is Nineveh. <laughs> Nothing to do with Israel, really. Really. That, that is rather like God announcing that he was going to destroy London. Or, or if you're big on independence, Edinburgh. The capital city. In other words, by destroying it, he's afflicting the nation. What for? What, what's he destroying Nineveh for? They didn't receive the law at Mount Sinai. They didn't have a priesthood. No, but for gross breaches of the moral law. That's the light they had. And we're always responsible for the light they had. I mean, suppose you had never heard the gospel. You will be judged according to the light. You had the moral law of God written in your heart. So you won't be judged for rejecting Jesus as such, but for breaking the law of God. But God judged Nineveh. The interesting thing is, before he actually judged the city, he gave them an opportunity for repentance. He sent a prophet, a reluctant prophet, Jonah, who, who was brought, of course, through chastisement himself, to preach to the people of Nineveh. And he preached God's judgment, 
but he said that Nineveh would only be destroyed in 40 days' time, which represents opportunity probation. They had 40 days to change, in other words. God gave them time and opportunity to change. And of course, famously, they did change. And famously, God spared the city. And he spared the empire because he spared the city. The Assyrian Empire remained in place because there was repentance in the capital city of Nineveh. Now, are we processing all that? These are people miles away from the people of God. But God is dealing with that city according to how they respond to his moral law and indeed to his gospel. Of course, they went back to sin. That's why God sent the prophet Nahum to tell them that judgment was coming after all. There was no second chance. And it did come. And it came because of their sin. Interestingly, some of these nations actually perished. They're in oblivion now. Where's Edom? Nowhere to be seen. Where's Moab? Nowhere to be seen. Other nations were simply chastised by God, and they still exist. Ethiopia, for example, was chastised by God. It still exists. Egypt was chastised by God, and it still exists. But there's nothing there except what God's still doing. Do we not understand that? I mean, if you look at events that happen, and you don't see God responding to obedience and disobedience, you, you're actually taking away from yourself the whole teaching of providence, which should be yours. Seeing God in his works and understanding his works and providence. Ezekiel says, or God says through the prophet, that when a land sins against me, by persistent unfaithfulness, I will send, and he mentions war, famine, disease. I suppose famine's easier to send in, in those nations of the earth in that respect. Maybe God's displeasure would appear in the West in a different way. Not exactly. For example, it's highly unlikely that God would use locusts amongst ourselves. Highly unlikely. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't use something else in our culture to take the place of such locusts. But notice that what God said was when a land sins against me, not the land. He didn't say when Israel sins against me or when Judah sins, but when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will send. And of course, even the last book of the Bible, which is set in New Covenant times. When that book speaks of God sending war upon the earth and sending famine, what's that but God dealing with the nations? We actually sang it in the psalm. Listen to these words again. He who chastises the nations, shall he not chastise you? He who chastises or corrects the nation or disciplines the nations, shall he not discipline you? But how could he discipline the nations if we would never recognize him? How? Let that sink in. How could God discipline the United Kingdom unless we recognize that discipline? 
Same's true on an individual level. Let me just clarify this because the same mistake is made. Christ's warning about the tower falling on the 18 stands. It's like the car accident. You can't say tragedy accident, therefore terrible sin. Fair enough. But that's not the Bible's only teaching about the matter. That's not all the Bible has to say about disaster and sin. The Bible nowhere says that we can never make a connection between disaster and chastisement or judgment. Let's take that at the obvious level of your own life. You know, when, when a disaster strikes your own life, do you ever ask if it's a chastisement? Well, if you never ask, don't be surprised if you never discover that it is. Because you haven't asked. God has struck you, but you refuse to accept that it could have anything to do with whether you're in the way or out of the way. I hope that's not how you're living your Christian life. I really do. Because it means that you've become a kind of deist, that God is a kind of abstract God who doesn't use providence anymore uh, in speaking to your soul. Imagine if the Corinthians who were dying because of the Lord's Supper were like that. If, if people in the church in Corinth didn't say, well, 15 people have died recently in the congregation, uh, but that's not God speaking to us. That's just something that happens. Well, they would have missed the lesson, which was that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. Take someone, obviously, like, like David, whom the Lord chastised with the death of a child and the rebellion of another child. Was he supposed to say, oh, well, that happens, you know, days of adversity, days of prosperity. There's nothing to learn there but just that life's short. No, there was a lot more than that to learn because God was very definitely chastising him. And what's more, it's not only in your own life that you're able to discern it. You can discern it in the life of others too, providing you are spiritually careful. When Uzzah died touching the ark of God, all Israel were meant to recognize that that was God's hand upon Uzzah. He didn't just happen to die when he touched the ark. When Ananias and Sapphira fell dead, the whole church knew that God had intervened. Of course, when Judas Iscariot died by hanging, you were meant to understand that God's hand was upon him. Now, again, you could say in response to that, ah, but there's a difference there, you see, because the Bible tells us that. And uh, God effectively, in one way or another, told the people that. Well, let me take another case for you then. Let me take the powerful case of Haman, the Persian official who had planned to liquidate the people of God. And of course, he famously built a set of gallows for Mordecai. But in a strange turn of events, uh, on that day itself, uh, Haman was hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Now, You'll remember the book of the Bible in which that incident appears. It's the book of Esther. We looked at that book in detail some time ago. You'll remember that one of the most significant things about the book of Esther is that God's name is not mentioned once in the book. Because it is a book about providence. 
Not once in the uh, 12 or 13 chapters of Esther do we find any reference to God saying anything. Doesn't speak nothing. Nothing. So much so that people have wondered, is, is it a genuinely spiritual book that you'd have a place in the Bible? Because God doesn't appear and he doesn't speak. But actually, that is a, a teaching mechanism, which we saw at the time, because the effective teaching of that book is that God is working even when he's not speaking, or God is still speaking even when he's not vocalizing something. In other words, the thing that happened to Haman is to be understood by us simply in the light of God's word as what happens when sinners' hands do make the snares wherewith they themselves are caught. And it would have been strangely unspiritual for us to say, oh, well, isn't it amazing, you know, how Haman just happened to be hung on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. But, you know, it had nothing to do with the fact that he was plotting against God's people. We, we shouldn't interpret it like that. Oh, but you should. You should interpret it like that. It would be just as wrong for you to miss that as it would be to make the inference that the Tower of Siloam had fallen on 18 people who deserved the Tower of Siloam to fall on them. Because there are other factors in play. We can't go around saying accident, sinner, accident, sinner, disaster, sinners. But, that, but that's, that's not enough. To get a real spiritual and Christian understanding of events, we have to go deeper and further than that. Haman's providence was a judgment from God, and that's how you were meant to understand it. It was providence writ large, God's judgment writ large in providence for everybody to see without any special word for God, from God. The same is true. I'm just taking examples of things that we looked at either recently or in, in the fairly recent past. We saw it in connection with Absalom too. When Absalom rode on the mule under the tree and had his hair caught in the branches and was killed, it wasn't just a case of days of adversity and days of prosperity. That's what happens sometimes in battle. No, no. You're meant to understand the pieces of the jigsaw, to understand how the pieces of the jigsaw come together and to put these pieces together and to see the picture that this vain man was destroyed by his own vanity. God's chastisement, again, is writ large on that death, you see. Do you see the difference between such a thing and somebody dying in an accident out there? There is a difference. God has always chastised individuals and nations in providence, and he still does. Now, you can again say to that, well, you know, that may be true, but I still feel uncomfortable about uh, trying to make assessments about what happens in nations or individuals' lives. And uh, I, I cannot, you could say, I cannot even say that, that COVID-19 is a, a chastisement from God and, unless somehow God says it. I, I, know, I know it's not written in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that in 2020, God will unleash a virus on the nations. Uh, but but God has to somehow speak in the middle of it. But as well as taking you into that place where 
you could never discern anything, because that's what you're saying. You could never discern anything unless it's in the Bible, as well as taking you to that uncomfortable place. It's actually also <laughs> understating the amount of things that the Bible does tell you about what happens. In other words, it's, it's amazing when you go to the Word of God and pray for guidance, the extent to which you will recognize the times in which you live and how you ought to respond to the times in which you live. Now, really, um, that is far greater than we realize. With a Bible in your hand, and a Spurgeon would have said a newspaper in the other, or let's put it a better way, with a Bible in your hand and looking at providence in the other, it's amazing how much you can learn how you can know the times as Jesus wanted us to know them and how we can respond to the times. You'll remember that Jesus famously rebuked the Pharisees because they could read the sky at night, but they couldn't discern the times. How is it, he says, that when it's a red sky at night, you can say it's going to be a good day tomorrow, but you can't discern the times. You can't tell what's going on. Now, I, I can only begin this just now. I, I, we'll pick it up tonight, but I'm only be, going to begin by just taking one example, and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. When the Bible speaks about knowing the times and uh, speaks about the men of Issachar, for example, knowing the times, we'll come to that tonight, and the Pharisees not knowing the times. Knowing the times is important, and it's our duty to know them. The times is just a way of describing what man is doing and what God is doing. When you put these two things together, you have the times. What, what is man doing? What is God doing? And if we know the times, we'll know how to respond to them. Joel was interestingly sent to a people here who are in the middle of a plague. It's not finished yet when Joel is sent, but it's quite clear that most of the damage is done. And Joel is sent to them to say, look, it's the Lord's army. Calvin interestingly said that what the prophet is doing really is rebuking the stupidity of the people for not discerning the chastisement of God in the first place. In other words, Joel is sent by God to a people who are, who are not seeing the work of God and what's going on. In fact, for most of them, it's just, oh, you know, it's an awful plague this year. So he's rebuking the stupidity of the people for not discerning the Lord's chastisement. The, the example I want to give you is actually the most general example. I, I, I'll take specific ones tonight, but I want to take the most general example because in a way it's, it's the most important one for us. The overall time that we are all living in, this will only take a, two or three minutes, the overall time that we are living in just now is called by the Bible the last time, or the last times. The, these are the times in which we are living. As Peter says, Christ was foreordained from the foundation of the world, but he was manifest in these last times for you. So the last times is a way of describing the last 2,000 years of world history. In fact, it also takes in any other period between now and seconds. Christ's second advent. Or in other words, to make it more plain, the last times in the Bible is the time between the first advent of Christ, 2,000 years ago, 
and the second advent of Christ, the last times. As we'll see tonight, there are different kinds of times inside them, but overall we are in the last times. Now, he says, the Bible says, you need to know this time. In fact, the first, the first time that you need to recognize is the last time that we are living in. If you recognize that the characteristic of this time is the time between the two advents, you will respond in a special way, especially when you realize that this second advent may in some respects be imminent. You will respond accordingly. If you're not a believer today, your response should be this. Um, you should recognize that your duty is to hear God saying, now is the appointed time and now is the day of salvation. I have brought many successive time periods to their end and to their closure. And the last times in this world's history began when I sent my son in these last days. Now, you are living in these last days. It is characterized by a full and clear and powerful proclamation of a finished work of Christ. Not in times past with symbols and shadows and prophecies, but now in the accepted time and in the day of salvation with an urgent proclamation of a clear and powerful gospel. And your duty is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in these last times and you shall be saved before the straight gate is shut and the door of salvation is closed. If you are a believer, Paul says that you are to know the time. Knowing the time, he says, that it is now high time to awaken out of sleep. In between the two advents is a time of ingathering and urgency. What, what, what looms large before us in the grand scheme of things is the second coming of Christ to wrap everything up. So it's high time, he says, to awaken out of sleep, for now is our salvation nearer than when he first believed. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness, he goes on to say, and let us put on the armor of light. Know the time. It's the last times, and that's how you respond. Tonight we'll see that there are other times too. We could call them times of visitation, when people behave in certain ways and God responds accordingly. And we need to respond to these times. Uh, we'll see these, God willing, this evening. Let us pray. O oh Lord, when you uh, correct nations, so you correct ourselves as individuals too. You formed the eye, and uh, you formed the ear, and uh, you know all things, and uh, you know how to deal with all things. We pray to be responsive to you in life, and uh, to recognize your hand upon us in your dealings with us as a people, as churches, nations, and individual souls. Lord, we ask that you would open these scriptures to us, that we would understand their teaching better. Uh, to the glory of our great Savior's name. Amen. Now, the last psalm uh, that will read and here is Psalm 2. 
It'll be sung to the tune uh, Martyrs. On page uh, 201 in your psalm book. At verse 8, ask of me, and for heritage the heathen I'll make thine, and for possession I to thee will give earth's utmost line. Thou shalt us with a weighty rod of iron break them all, and as a potter's share thou shalt them dash in pieces small. Now therefore, kings, be wise, be taught, you judges of the earth. Serve God in fear, and see that you join trembling with your mirth. Kiss ye the sun, lest in his ire you perish from the way, if once his wrath begin to burn, blessed all, but on him stay. These last three stanzas. And to receive God's blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs>